John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hi, this is Steve. Some movies just are what they are. There's no real ambiguity in When Harry Met Sally, no great mysteries to solve an airplane or deep mind-bending contradictions in Die Hard. What you see is pretty much what you get, and that's a good thing. However, there's a whole other set of films like Fight Club, The Matrix, Moon, Blade Runner 2049, and of course the granddaddy of all mind-bending movies, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 A Space Odyssey. These are films that like a half-remembered dream or nightmare stick with you in a way those other films, no matter how great their stories, never do. Inception might be one of the most spectacular action films ever made, as well as one of the most complicated heist movies, but unlike other films in those genres, whose stories pretty much reveal themselves by the end, the truth of Inception remains shrouded in mystery. No matter how many layers you dig through, or how many facts you think you've locked down, in the end, there simply is no way of knowing exactly what is really going on. And that, of course, is what makes it all so incredibly fascinating. So if you've never actually explored the world of Inception, it's time for you to wake up and head straight to cinephiles.net where you can buy or stream Inception along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash the cinephiles, Right now, you could be listening to us discuss our favorite fantasy films. So, 
That's Fantasy Films right now on Patreon and Inception Part 2 this Friday on The Cinephiles. You feel that? You've actually been trained for this, Mr. Fisher. Pay attention to the strangeness of the weather, the shift in gravity. None of this is real. You're in a dream. Hello and welcome back to The Cinephiles, where we are continuing our exploration into the land of dreams and inception. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roca. I'm a writer, producer, and host here in Los Angeles, uh, California, as well as a voiceover artist and the CEO of the Outlaw Nation. Uh, and Steve, here we go, because I got no idea <laughs> what's going to happen as we dive into the three separate dream, three levels of dream of a dream. It's a, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's a lot deep in the dreaming. And where we are right now, though, we're still in the real world. We've arrived at the airport. And one so more. So you think it's the real world. Or so yeah, I good. think. Yeah. And one more time, Cobb confirms with Saito that he's really can make this call because mm -hmm. if he gets on this plane and the plane lands in the U.S. and the call hasn't been made, well, he goes to jail for the rest of his life. Right. And, and Saito says, no problem. And then we get a cool, what I will say, and it's fine, I think I said in part one, mm -hmm. that, that in a lot of ways, the thing that I think Inception is closest to is, is Mission Impossible. And in yeah. particular, like a Mission Impossible of the TV series, which I loved growing up, mm -hmm. you know, because we get on the plane and we got a plan. And the plan, we're going to, there's uh, Robert, who's our Mark. They, they rob him of his uh, passport. And Cobb is the guy who finds it and makes a little connection with him. He goes, oh, wait, are you uh, Maurice's son? And he goes, yeah. And they makes a toast to uh, the father. He said he was a great man. And of course, he's put something in the water that they're toasting with because then we cut to later. He is out. Yeah. And now we go into the plan. But the, the stewardess closes the curtain. She pulls out that dream briefcase machine, whatever it is. Um, and all, we see all of our guys, and they all fall asleep. And then Yusuf is in the rain yeah. in Los Angeles. Um, by the way, this was shot in L.A. It was shot in the middle of summer. Mm -hmm. There was no rain. It was shot over <laughs> weeks. And it's and this isn't just like like when they when we do singing in the rain with Gene Kelly, they're doing like one half of one block street on one side that they have yeah. to make it rain. This is like three or four city blocks mm -hmm. that all have to be raining simultaneously. And by the way, normally when you shoot rain, you shoot it at night. And the reason you shoot it at night is that you want the rain backlit because otherwise you can't see the drops. I mean, how many times have you looked out the window on a rainy day and gone, wait, is it still raining? Yeah. And it takes a while because the overhead lighting makes that the rain disappear. Mm -hmm. So then you go, well, if we can't do it at night, at least we want it to be cloudy. Because if it's overcast, then we have more opportunities to light so we can see the rain. Middle of summer, Los Angeles, not a very cloudy time of year. Yeah. And so what they did, and it's just crazy, you can look at some of the behind the scenes pictures of it, is they tracked exactly where the sun is going to be throughout the day. And they have huge cranes and huge flags, big black canvases, to block the entire sun as it goes through its day to make enough shade to light the rain. And it's a great effect. And I remember being in LA and seeing the pictures or hearing about them shooting this massive shot or scene down in downtown LA and how much it was going to cost them and how much they had blocked off a number of those uh, streets. Uh, so, uh, you know, to see the result just for like, I don't know, five minutes of the movie, it seemed like such a massive 
massive thing. You know, I was watching a show last night, a, a British show, and just for a crowd scene, it's called The Durrells in Corfu. It's a really cool little show, but like just for a crowd scene where they've set it in Corfu, Greece, you have to, you know, clothe the entire crowd in period appropriate clothes for maybe a 45 second scene. And I always find that to be incredible because of how much effort and work and money that is spent in situations like that for such a short amount of a movie or a TV show. But yeah, this is one of those scenes. Well, it's so crazy because A, I'm naturally somewhat cheap. And B, <laughs> and B you know, with film, I've always had a limited budget, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like I never, we never had any money to make the films that I made. So every single thing was always about how can I scrape by getting the, wow. the most out of the least resources? I only have six extras. That's all I can afford. I only have this one location. Like when we shot The Assistants, we had a, a location that was this kind of live workspace and we, and we found that to be the main characters uh, home and, and, and they were just opening the place up. And so there was a lot of empty stuff there. And so I said, and we also needed to get offices. Yeah. So I said, well, instead of renting it for four days to shoot, why don't we rent this? It's a live workspace. Can we rent it for a month mm. and just pay a month's rent? And then that became the offices. And then because the space was somewhat empty, I said, well, can I shoot over here during the day? And they're like, yeah, okay. We shot 11 different locations at this one live workspace wow. because we didn't have any money, you know? And so it was like, how do you, and it ended up, I think, looking really good. And you wouldn't have known that the, this was actually the agent's office and the entrance to the bar and the student film set and the accountant's office. And cause we just redressed everything over and over again. Right. Um, and this is the opposite situation. Like I remember when we did close encounters, Mm -hmm. And Spielberg had such juice coming off of Jaws and so much money that he, every idea he had, let's explore it. And I think this is the same thing. Whereas, you know, we're right after Dark Knight and Nolan is like, well, I want it this way. And then everyone went, okay. Yeah. Because the stuff, we're not even at the craziest stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, wait till we get in the hotel. And, I mean, it, like yeah, there's right? so much crazy stuff that's about to happen. Yeah. So first they ram the cab so that Arthur can take over driving. And then they pick up uh, Robert. And just as he gets in, well, Eames gets in and Saito gets in too. And at first it's just like, hey, man, this is my cab. And then, of course, they pull guns on him. $500 in there. The wallet's worth more than that. So you might at least drop me at my stop. And Cobb and Ariane Adne are in their car, and they're following, and that's part of the plan. And then, out of nowhere, a freight train drives right down the middle of the street and hits them, coming between them and the taxi. Which is so intense, out of nowhere, and then you're just like, okay, you remember. Because, I mean, you could easily get caught up in the tenets of a movie. And you're like, okay, logical, this makes sense, it's raining. And of course, uh, uh, they make jokes about the fact that you, did Yusuf want to go to the bathroom and thinking that maybe right. he drank too much water, so that's why it's raining. Uh, but then a, 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 a literal train, freight train coming right through the middle of the sidewalk, middle of the asphalt, with great effect, by the way, and every, everything that it hits and, and just pushes aside. And the sound uh, of this uh, you know, sequence as well is so overwhelming, it's meant to jar you because it's meant as a protection uh, for uh, for uh, uh, his character, and so that is so shocking. You go, okay, that's right. This is a dream. So now anything can happen at this point, and they have to adjust to whatever's being presented in the dream. And they're all on their toes, which I really enjoy, Steve. From the beginning, it isn't just accomplishing the mission; it is also avoiding all the pitfalls and uh, obje- and uh, I don't know challenges that'll pop up 
out of the blue because that's how a dream is. Out of nowhere, something else will pop up, something else will show up, and, and you'll have to adjust to what you're trying to do in a dream. So, so let's, let's analyze this a little more because this is where, okay. this is where the, like, again, trying to figure out and make sure we understand what's really happening or, or because mm-hmm. I think the first time I saw this movie, it just sort of washes over you. Oh, it does. You, you don't know, like try, trying to figure it out is really hard. So let's be really clear. This is Yusef's dream. Yes. And that's where the bathroom joke comes because what we're understanding is that even though Ariadne designed this world, because that's her, although we never saw anything about that, but she is the architect who designs the world. So she designed this world. But the reason it is raining is because of something in Yusuf's subconscious. Yes. But the reason the freight train comes down the middle of the street is because of Cobb's subconscious. Yes. And what we and again, going back to that, we're going to go to what the, we, we could talk about what this freight train means. The right. freight train is the device that he used to kill himself and his wife mm-hmm. uh, when they were trapped in limbo. And so the freight train is this, and it's something we also saw when we went down, Ariadne went down the elevator that was on one of the floors. Yeah. So he, so now we have Yusuf summoning the rain in yeah. his dream because <laughs> it's his subconscious, Cobb summoning the freight train because of his subconscious and a world created by Ariadne because she is the architect. Right. So, this, so already this is really complicated. One quick thing about the freight train is um, is that it is built on a semi. They took a big truck. They extended the trailer of the truck. Mm. They built it with mostly fiberglass and plywood. So it's really light, yeah. except for the very front, which is all made out of heavy steel because they had to smash through the cars. Right. And again, <laughs> this is just Christopher Nolan having so much juice at this moment. <laughs> Originally, it was going to smash two cars. And then he said, no, we need to smash more cars. So at the last minute, they bring in a whole bunch more cars to smash through. And then they come up, and then Nolan again at the last minute says, well, if a train drove down the middle of a city street, because it's on wheels, it's on rubber yeah. tires, it would tear up the street. So they had to build a whole thing because he wants everything practical. So it also tears up the street at the last minute, you know? And it's awesome. I, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not... Great sequence. Yeah, I'm not faulting his decisions. Right. I'm just like as someone who never had any money to make his movies, just saying, <laughs> let's smash 20 more cars, you know? <laughs> it's sort of crazy to me. Now, all of a sudden, we're in the cab, and we think, okay, we're kidnapping our, our Mark, and that's what's supposed to happen. And then, all of a sudden, they get surrounded by other cars in the cab. So Cobb is trapped on the other side of the freight train, and now we're surrounded by these cars, and they open fire. Now, what is this? So that that's Fisher's uh, defense mechanism that has been in, which we don't discover until we get inside the dream, what his defense mechanism is, because he's been trained, because this is a world that exists. This is a, in the world that they exist, the idea of having your dreams attacked by other pe- outside people is something rich people prepare for or are prepared for. Am, am I correct on this? This is Fisher's yes. defense mechanism. These guys coming out with their weapons and they're, they're supposed to kill everybody around because they've decided to kill, I mean, to kidnap Fisher. So by kidnapping Fisher, they've triggered this defense mechanism in, in Fisher's subconscious. Right. So, so w- what we have to assume is that someone like Cobb came along mm-hmm to uh, Robert and his dad and said, listen, this thing can yeah. happen. And they went through some kind of training. So something in his mind is aware that he's in a dream. Yeah. And that thing in his mind has created these guys with machine guns and stuff like this. So, yeah. so the levels of, 
who is creating this world is really complicated right, right? now. Yeah. And this is also, I would say, the first time that we see that Arthur is a badass. Yeah. Because he drives that car. I mean, in the instant reaction to we're under threat and how he gets the car out of there yeah. Yeah. Uh, is just awesome. Uh, and by the way, just to make this even harder, this is, again, it's all real stunt driving. Yeah. And stunt driving is made much harder when the streets are all wet. <laughs> and it's one thing they said that's really interesting is that it's even worse in LA. And the reason that it's worse in LA is that if you're in Seattle, where it rains all the time, yeah. you don't have the accumulation of oil and grease on the streets that you do in Los Angeles. So Los Angeles, where it doesn't rain, it might have not, might not rain for three or four months. That's three or four months of driving that's left oil and residue and stuff like that on the streets. So now you wash that all down, you've got some really slippery roads. And yeah. so the, the stunt work is just amazing. I mean, including like, you know, Cobb sideswipes a car that hits a guy and throws him or Arthur traps a guy against another car. I have no idea how that stunt was done because it's really scary. And we managed to get out. We look around and go, are, are you okay? And of course, Saito has been shot. And they, they pull into a warehouse and now they're treating this like we are kidnappers. That's the basic thing. Uh, and they drag Fisher into a room. And after we get rid of him, now we have the first suggestion and this is where what you said is that oh these are professionals that means yeah. he's been trained right. and Cobb is pissed off at Arthur why didn't you do this research don't tell me to calm down this was your job goddammit. this was your responsibility you were meant to check Fisher's background thoroughly we are not prepared for this type of violence we have dealt with subsecurity before we'll be a little more careful and we're gonna be fine this was not a part of the plan he's dying for God Arthur is starscream to Cobb's Megatron that's what he is. That's the way I look at this thing. Because <laughs> throughout the whole movie, which is why I think this is a dream. The entire movie is a dream in, in, uh, in Cobb's mind. Uh, Arthur is basically Cobb's bitch. And you've said this before the whole time. Like, why does Cobb keep, or why does Arthur keep coming back when Cobb mistreats him so well? I, I get it. Look, all of us have worked for terrible bosses. We all get it. We got to pay bills sure. or whatever. But this is a separate situation because clearly Arthur is a very intelligent guy and could oh, yeah. probably get a job someplace else uh, pushing this, uh, working for another company like this. But somehow he works for this mom and pop situation uh, for Cobb. And Cobb always yells at him like Megatron scream, uh, screams at Starscream all the time. Once again, you've let me down, Starscream. You know, and it's like, God, you know, it just he is his whipping boy all the time. Well, and it was like, Cobb, you're the boss here. And and what I think is really happening, because the uh, there are two uh, things they weren't prepared for that happened. One is the projections of uh, Robert Fisher's subconscious. Mm -hmm. We did, weren't prepared for that. And the other is a fucking freight train. Yeah. <laughs> and what I think is happening is that Cobb is doing, and I've seen many people do this all the time, of like, Oh, I don't want anyone to pay attention to my right. mess up. Right. So I'm going to yell at you and make this about you so people don't focus on me. Exactly. You know, exactly. Because really, Cobb is the problem. Cobb is the big problem. I mean, maybe Yusuf had to pee, so it's raining, but no. Cobb brought Cobb, a freight Cobb train. is always the problem. Cobb, yeah. Throughout the whole movie, Cobb yeah. is a problem. He, he, he is borderline incompetent. He's incredible his job, but at times he's borderline incompetent uh, because if anyone should have known there was a defense mechanism, it's Cobb. He's like the guy who knows all about this stuff. Cobb should have. So you can't micro and macro manage at the same time and still complain about the people on your team. Like that, you have no one to blame but yourself if you're doing both micro and ma ma macro managing. 
Well, and this is the big thing. I was I started to say the last part, but now I'll say it now, which is that I think, you know, I said this is kind of Mission Impossible. I think this is Mission Impossible where all the team members are way cooler than Ethan Hunt. Like, <laughs> like or something in, way more capable. Yeah, in Mission Impossible, it's always like, well, Ethan will figure it out. He's right, going right. to do some crazy badass stuff. Cobb does almost nothing that's good in right, the whole movie, right. and you have all of the team members saving the day over and over and over again. Right. He's just willing to do it and talk them into it. And which we yeah. find out later, trick them all into it well, uh, later on. Well, then we're going to find that out right now because yeah, here we go. now we, we see Saito's been shot. And so Eames naturally pulls out his weapon, walks over, is going to shoot into his head. And Cobb goes, no, no, don't, no, don't do it. He's in agony. I'm waking him up. It won't wake him up. What do you mean it won't wake him up? It won't him wake up. him up. When we die in a dream, we wake up. Not from this. We're too heavily sedated to wake up that way. And it ends up that Yusuf knew that this level of sedation means that if you die here, you don't go up and wake up because you can't wake up. You go down to limbo, whatever the hell that is. Limbo? Unconstructed dream space. Well, what the hell is down there? Just raw, infinite subconscious. Nothing is down there except for whatever might have been left behind by anyone sharing the dream who's been trapped there before, which in our case is just you. Well, how long can we be stuck there? I can't even think about trying to escape until the sedation how is long? eased. Decades. It could be infinite. I don't know. Ask him. He's the one who's been there. And that is a total betrayal. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, yeah, it really sucks that Arthur, I guess, didn't find out that there might be these projections. But now their lives and sanity are at stake. Because apparently Limbo, you know, we have this time extension. So at each level of dream, time gets longer. In Limbo, you could be there for centuries. Yeah. Not and lose track that it's a dream and just go insane. And this is so interesting, Steve, because these are a genre of movies where everyone is subject to the lead character's desire. And this is a selfish desire, right? He is helping Saito so that he can go back and see his kids. And he's talked everybody else into doing it pretty easily. Uh, And they're all so much on board for supposedly the challenge or the thrill of it. But really, this is all about Cobb trying to get back home, and he will do whatever it takes and screw anybody over and lie to anybody that he wants to in order to achieve that mission. And we've seen this in numerous films in other films. And so I find this to be a fascinating uh, thing. As we change as a society, as a movie-going consumer, we start to poke holes in these lead characters as we go back and watch these films and wonder if they're as heroic as we're led to believe. It's funny. It's almost like you, we have to discuss, well, how do you watch a movie? Like, right, what, right. what do we do? Yeah. You know, because I think Inception, if you just let it wash over you. Yes. is totally amazing. Yeah. And then, and with some movies, the more you dig into them, the better they get. Yes. You know, and you go, oh, well, this was really why this person, if this was their motivation, then this happened. And because and and, and they're so beautiful. Like, so the ultimate example of this is Citizen Kane. Right. Citizen Kane, the more you think about it, the better it gets. Yeah. In this film, sometimes there's things in a film where a movie tells you a thing. Yeah. And then you kind of have to accept it to accept the movie. Yeah. Um, like uh, the, a movie that is uh, probably will have come out by this point is a brief encounter and in brief encounter you have to accept that this is true love right if you don't accept that if you kind of ascribe different motivations to alec the guy mm-hmm. well the whole movie falls apart cobb says the basically the movie is structured that the only way he could possibly get back to his kids is what he's doing right now right. 
if you don't accept that, if you go, well, why are you doing what you're doing? Or what else did you try? Or what is this? You know, like, there's never a discussion of, well, why don't you just send the kids to cop? Right. You know, you know, like it's, but, but we have, if, if we don't, if we think, the more we think about that stuff. Right. I think the movie gets worse. Yeah. Because Cobb could also go back, Steve, to the United States. And le- hey, hey, here's, here's, let me ring the bell on this. This is a rich guy. And last I checked, rich guys get away with a lot of things in the American law system. So he could have come back, fought this thing with a team of lawyers all the way to the end and maybe served a couple of months or six months if they were able to prove that she manipulated this whole situation and put this all in motion, if this is actual reality. Once again, and this is where you dive, because you dive deeper into the premise of the movie, to me, it only reinforces that this is, the entire movie is Cobb's dream. And it's not reality. Uh, because the, because of you, if, you, if you break it down like that, then the movie falls apart, to be honest with you. Uh, because Cobb could absolutely have gone back uh, to the States taking the hits, got a team of lawyers. We see this now with Lori Laughlin, how she's fighting this whole thing off. She hasn't seen a day of jail. She's been fighting this whole thing off with motions and suppression and all this kind of stuff. And now eventually she finally pleaded guilty and she's probably going to get a slap on the wrist. Where Cobb could do this the whole way through and could end up you know, only serving six months at most while, and then see his kids right afterwards for the rest of his life. So these are these things that you, if you start to mine further, you start to question the actual premise of the movie. And so my default thought is that it is all a dream from Cobb because I trust Christopher Nolan more as a writer than, uh, uh, and know that he wouldn't create a flimsy premised movie, in my opinion. Well, so let me, I'm going to address that in a second. <laughs> <laughs> but let me, let me say this, is that I, I would take it even further. It's like, yes, we could say Cobb's a rich guy and therefore he could use the system. Yeah. Cobb is also a guy with a Mission Impossible team and the superpower of entering dreams. Yeah. So like he's capable enough to kidnap the richest you know, young man in the world, enter sure. his dreams and literally change the future by ad- incepting this idea into his sure. head. But in terms of getting back to his kids, he's completely bewildered. It's totally, there's no way I could do it, you know? And, but again, well, but this is the interesting question, like, is that we can ask this question, should we? Right. You know, it's like when we did, not that this is a comparison, but we did Con Air. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't ask any questions about Con Air. Like, it's Con Air. Right. You just, right. You know, or, 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 or one of your favorites, of course, Armageddon. Yeah. Is that, is Armageddon better if you really think about the science? Of course, of course not. No, you make the movie worse. Yeah. You know, and so, and so like, in, in some weird way, if you dig into Citizen Kane, it gets better. And so right. your value in seeing the movie goes up and up and up the more you dig. Exactly. You get Con Air, it gets worse. Right. So now the 15 bucks you spent on the movie, you were actually losing money <laughs> yeah. you know, because you've yeah. now made your, you've degraded your experience. In terms of Christopher Nolan, I think if you look at the movies of his that work less well, mm-hmm. it is all because he has flimsy premises that don't hold mm-hmm. together. You okay. know, all you look right. at Dark Knight Rises being a perfect example where it's like, the more you think about that movie, the more it's like, well, I don't understand what's, what, why are the characters doing what they're doing? You know, and even in Dark Knight, which is fantastic, yeah, it's it's Heath Ledger's performance, and it's the overwhelming uh, emotional and cinematic scope of that movie that right. makes it great. Not because you think it all through, and since he is the executive producer on 
the Zack Snyder. Don't, don't you, you know, start. Don't you start. Don't you start. Well, you don't like Batman v Superman. I don't like, but I love Man of Steel. So, well, but he, this so is the, he produced that too. Yeah, well, but, and again, would you say that you your statement was, Christopher Nolan, I trust him as a writer. He would never let a flimsy... I, I've, I haven't seen a flimsy premise from him in a movie. Even when he doesn't 100% hit the mark, like Interstellar, I still find the impetus of the movie to be something that's interesting to me. And to- uh, I totally complex, agree. Right? And Absolutely. And so, but I think with this situation, it looks complex to mirrors, but underneath there's really not much here other than some dude's selfish desire to come home to his kids at everyone else's expense. Well, I, I'm, I, would, I would disagree with your word choice. Okay. I think it is complex. There's a yes. whole bunch. I mean, we to, just yeah. to decipher what the hell's going on, this is complex. It's not as deep as it pretends to be. There we go. That's you know, a, a better, yeah, that's a clarification. Absolutely, it, yeah. It has, it has, it. well, and this is the thing. It's like, I remember seeing this movie in the theater oh, yeah. and just m- my mind was totally blown. Yeah. And so, you know, again, it's like Christopher Nolan's genius. Right. But then, but then, but I go to this question of like, well, how do you want to watch this movie? Right. You know, and this is an episode of The Cinephile, so we're going to dig in and then you listening can decide whether that yeah. made the movie better. Right. And um, by the way, I still love the movie. I sure. still love the movie. Yeah, I will totally watch this movie again oh, in yeah. a few years because, yeah. and I look forward to like showing it to my kid and because it is a, a remarkable film. By the way, so we're back in this moment where <laughs> where we've just revealed that that Cobb has totally betrayed them and that they all yeah. could go into limbo and become insane. And I love Eames's line where he just sarcastically says, "So now we're trapped in Fisher's mind, battling his own private army, and if we get killed, we'll be lost in limbo till our brains turn to scrambled egg." Hmm? <laughs> and the hmm is just so funny perfect tom hardy and his subtlety <laughs> well and then the other thing we find out because yusuf didn't tell anyone either is yeah. that he, and arthur kind of goes well did he did he give you like half his money and yusuf's like no he gave me all his money right so not only shit. is Cobb betrayed him but he's bribed someone else to keep it a secret mm-hmm. there's a difference between a passive lie and an active lie right you know, like if I kind of go, I don't really, you guys don't really need to know this and it'll all be fine. I'm, I'm kind of lying to myself, yes. you know, but if I pay someone off to not tell you the thing, now I'm being a, a dick. Now premeditated, I'm yeah. premeditated versus spur of the moment. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and then this is, this is the big question because Eames is like, well, I'm out. I'm yeah. not going to risk my life. Right. And the problem is, is that you're in the middle of Yusuf's dream. Or you can't wake up. And Robert's projections armed with automatic weapons are coming to kill you. Right. You would have to survive for a week here. So the only way to go forward, to go, to go back, is to go forward. Downwards is the only way forwards. Get ready. You, come on. Let's go shake him up. I'm insured against kidnapping for up to 10 million. It should be very simple. Shut up! It won't be. In your father's office below the bookshelves is his personal safe. We need the combination. <laughs> I love how they come in. Like, they have no idea. So much of this depends on uh, random theory, you know? And there must be a number. You must know the number. It must be in there somewhere. Okay, well, so so explain this. So this is where I don't understand what's going on. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. Okay, so there is no safe. There is, this is all made uh, up. Well, no, the safe is a, 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 what, a, 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 what do you call that? A symbolic of his mind. His oh, mind something is. in his mind where right. they want to get into. 
Yes. And it's in there that they're going to plant this idea yes. of the thing. Right. And so they're what they're is what they're doing essentially building the safe in his yes. mind. Yes. They're inferring okay. they're creating a safe in his mind so he can visualize the idea of having this like idea or this place way in the back of his mind that he keeps his deepest, most innermost right. feelings in. And they're then associating with it with this six digit number. Yes. I guess. Yeah. Well, and then the other thing, and I love this, is that we're back out with Eames and he's talking to Saito. They say, you know, we're going to have to do all this much faster because the projections are coming to get us. Right. And he's like, well, I was supposed to have like days to do this. And they're like, no, you only got hours. And he's in front of a mirror, like it's a bunch of mirrors, and the camera goes past him. And suddenly it's Tom Berenger. Mm-hmm. And I love how they do it because he's yeah. he's kind of not he's he's Eames in one mirror and then Tom Berenger in the other and the camera keeps moving and now he's completely Tom Berenger and he starts screaming. What's that? And that's when Robert realizes they have Uncle Peter. They have right. they have Browning, um, and they bring him in and he's handcuffed and he's obviously been beat up and he says they've been at me for two days and again he says he reinforces this thing about the combo and Maurice said that you knew it. And, you know, maybe it's some number based on a meaningful experience with your dad and Robert's responses. We didn't have very many uh, meaningful experiences together. Perhaps after your mother died. After my mother died, you know what he told me? Robert, there's really nothing to be said. Well, he, he was bad with emotion. I was 11 it's great dad. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. What one of the interesting things that they're doing is their tr- their their plan is to transform his emotions about what seems like a totally horrible person. Yes. Into positive emotions. Right. Exactly. Uh, which you could argue is a benevolent thing to do. To mm, maybe, you know, because so many of us and like they said at the uh, what Eam says to him, the easiest way in is the relationship between the father and the son. That's always right. the easiest way in because it really decorates a lot of uh, us as men. A lot of, it decorates a lot of our uh, approaches to the world and the issues we have to overcome and the things we have to confront. Did we disappoint or did we feel supported by our father, right? Or somewhere in the middle. That's the thing. And so with him, he constantly has felt terror, you know, felt um, uh, unloved by his father. So why not turn it completely around and give him what he really wants uh, beyond everything else, which is the love of his father? And also put this idea in the safe. So it's a combo of both. It's a, it's a weird one because it's one where I go like, you know, we don't know what the lasting effects of having, because you have an entire oh, lifetime yeah. of horrible experiences with this person. Right. And then somehow at the core, you, 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 you have now new love for them. Is that going to be a healthy thing? <laughs> you know, like could reframe like, every other experience in retrospect possible yeah well what you know if you think about just the the uh psychology of enabling and abuse right. is that someone is cannot get away from their abuser or reject them because deep down they still love them yes and that deep down still loving them is preventing them from moving on as a human so now what they're going to do is they're going to pre- put in an even stronger yeah. love for this person but they're not taking away all the memories of, of you know, abandonment and emotional uh, distance. Yeah. And the worst part of it all is you go, Robert might, whereas Robert would have with these experiences, maybe been a better father. Uh, because I know, a lo- I know a lot of people who had not the greatest of dads. And so when they raise their kids, they try to make sure they don't do what their dad did uh, that hurt them. 
Um, and now by twisting this around, you make it almost seem as if Robert could be a dad who, do, who did exactly what his father did and create right. distance. That's and a all good this point. Kind of, yeah, that supposedly leads to a, a great son. You know? Well, and the other thing, again, we have to take just, just as we have to take on faith that the only way for Cobb to get home is to do right. this thing, we also have to take on faith that Saito who is their business rival, says yeah. they're terrible people and we have to destroy yes. their company in order to save the world. Well, it's like, well, you're their business rival. You yeah. might have another motivation right. for wanting to destroy this company. But we never, I think you just kind of have to accept that that's the truth. It never gets explored by Cobb or anybody. No one checks it at all. Dive into. Yeah, no one checks it out at all. Yeah. For supposedly very thorough people, nobody really checks it out at all. Speaking of, of Saito, we're back with him and we find out that, well, if when we go to each level of dream, the pain will be less. You're somehow more distant from the wound. And if he dies? Worst case scenario, when he wakes up, his mind is completely gone. Cobra, I still own the arrangement. I appreciate that, Saito. But when you wake up, you won't even remember that we had an arrangement. Limbo's going to become your reality. You're going to be lost down there so long that you're going to become an old man. Fell with waiting to die alone which is exactly what saito said to him right. as he tried to convince him to go on this plane and it's re really related to mal and their relationship and mm -hmm. who who he is without her yeah uh, come back and we'll be young man together again again these things that are going to come back to us all right what is in the safe a will maurice's will is with port and done that's an alternate. This would supersede the other if you wanted to. It splits up the component businesses of Fisher Morrow. It'd be the end of the entire empire as we know it. And Robert's like, why would I want that? <laughs> and, and he said, and, and Brownie's like, well, because he wants you to be his, your own man. He loved you, Robert, in his own way. In his own way. At the end, he called me to his deathbed. He could barely speak, but he took the trouble to tell me one last thing. He pulled me close, and I can only make out one word. Disappointed. Right. <laughs> Disappointed is your father's dying word. Oh. It's, it's rough. Yeah, it is rough. Wow. Yeah, it's a strong one. It's yeah. a strong one. And now we get what is essentially another expositional scene. You might have the rest of the team convinced to carry on with this job, but they don't know the truth. Truth? What truth? The truth that at any minute you might bring a freight train through the wall. The truth that Maul is bursting through your subconscious. And the truth that as we go deeper into Fisher, we're also going deeper into you. And I'm not sure we're going to like what we find. So again, it's the same thing she's been saying. We can't trust you. Yeah. You are dangerous. For over an hour of the movie, she's been saying this. Yeah. Sure enough, everything she said is coming to pass. Yeah, but she has done nothing. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, screw it, I guess. <laughs> well, and, and now she, she has the additional knowledge that Cobb has totally lied to them and put them in a way more dangerous situation than they thought they were in. And yet she's still just kind of asking questions. And now we get the story of what Limbo was. He and Mal were kind of experimenting and exploring these dream worlds and they they didn't quite understand the time ratios how long were you stuck there something like 50 years Jeez. how could you stand 
wasn't so bad at first feeling like gods. And now we're in limbo. He's talking about how they basically created a whole world for themselves, which starts with, which I really like, sandcastles. Yeah. They did it for years. Mm-hmm. And they built a whole city, a whole world, exactly as they imagined it. That's, a, that's kind of remarkable to think about. I'll tell you, if you're any sense, any kind of romantic, when you see these sequences with him and Marion Cotillard, you can't help but feel, I don't know, just emotional about it as you're watching it because they clearly had a very strong love for each other. Uh, and spending 50 years with somebody, and by the way, they're away from their kids. Oh, yeah. In these 50 years that they're down there, they're happily, oh, well, not happily, I don't know if they're happily, away, but they certainly were in no rush to go back to their kids. They were exploring this world that they created for themselves down there. Uh, and no mention of the kids is made. No scenes with the kids are shot. It's just them walking around creating the world and doing whatever uh, and uh, being in love. It, it, it was, I'll tell you what's really funny is the my my feelings about this movie are very different, I think, for this sequence because of when I watched it. Okay. Because now I'm in quarantine. Right. And so the idea, the sort of romantic idea of being gods in this environment where you're with your true love and it's just the two of you and you're totally creating a world around you. Man, that sounds kind of romantic and lovely. Yeah. But I'm stuck in a house with my wife and my kid (laughs) and I want to go out and see other people. It's not that I don't love them. I don't have the power of gods. Right. But they can do that. And so you could do that in your world if you were to be able to create this utopian quarantine world. You could go out and do those things if you had their particular version of it. But yes, in the real world, maybe not as easy to do or as as palatable as they make it seem. And this is what kind of none of it's real. And so he he sort of realizes, you know, that this isn't real and kind of goes, we have to get out of here. Yeah. And this is what he what he is, what we see, because we're going to see sort of Mm -hmm. the hints of what happened. And we see, because we're watching the dream and we're hearing him narrate it, we see her looking at this house that we've seen many times. We see her opening up this dollhouse, which we see many times. And inside the dollhouse is a safe. And he says, She had locked something away, something deep inside her. A truth that she had once known, but, but chose to forget. And she takes the top, which is his top, which is his totem that symbolizes that he's in a dream, and she locks it up in the safe. Right. Yeah, because what she is, so what she has done is locked up her knowledge that this is not real. Right. And so if you extend this logic out, Steve, this is a woman, in my opinion, as I look at this as an analyst, this is a woman suffering postpartum depression or clearly not happy living the life she's living with these two children and her husband. And throughout every scene we see with Marion Cotillard, there is an overwhelming sense of sadness or depression or inadequacy. And you see it throughout every scene. She is never smiling or happy unless she's solo with him down in the dream world. Other than that, every one of these other scenes are just pained. And her rage and her anger. You know, you promised me we'd be together down there, you know, forever. There, so there was certainly something here that was off kilter, or off balance, through Cobb's mind. As I believe the film is a dream of Cobb's. Through Cobb's mind, this is the Marion, the Mal he has created, or that he remembers, right? And so uh, it's seen, you know, the whole the dollhouse and the safe, which of course mirrors what they're going to do now with 
with yeah. what's his face, which is why I think once again, it's Cobb's dream. This whole thing is Cobb's dream because Cobb's creates the idea of a safe, just like Marion Mal had rather had a safe to put stuff in. So it's like, it's all kind of related and connected and you don't have to agree with me who whoever's listening or, but that's how I see it. And so this all makes sense the way he's, and so Mal is clearly someone who had depressive tendencies or mental health issues and certainly didn't seem like she wanted to be a mom or enjoyed being a mom because there is no desperation to get back to her kids or to even create the kids in the dream world. And more so than a father, I think a mother as a maternal instinct would want to create that. I'm not trying to stereotype, I'm just saying, odds are. Well, first of all, uh, I think everyone out there listening, you do actually have to agree with John. <laughs> he is the outlaw and the outlaw will come after you in your That's dreams. Right. And your dreams. <laughs> um, Wait till you see what put in your safe. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other, the other, the other thing. Here's the other thing. It's not just is this Cobb's dream. Mm. It's when is this Cobb's dream? Right. Great. Point. And what has actually happened? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we could just say, well, everything that he said happened has happened, right. and this is after he's been kicked out of the country, and now he's just having this dream. Right. But it could be that he never left limbo. Yes. He never woke up yep. because because the what we're going to get to is that we go back to the real world. Um, he gets her out of limbo. And I love this line. He says to become old souls thrown back into youth like that. Yeah. That's a really interesting. You lived 50 years and what we later find out actually physically grew old. And then yeah. you wake up in a young body. Right. But she's having some kind of problems adjusting. And we see her like touch right. a knife. And we see those kids whose faces we don't see. And he says, eventually she told me the truth. She was possessed by an idea that our world wasn't real, that she needed to wake up to come back to reality, that in order to get back home, we had to kill ourselves. Yeah. Now, there's so many levels to this because what we later find out in, is in, in limbo, he convinced her to kill herself. Yes. Because the idea that he put in her brain is the inception, the idea that this is, world is not real. Right. And then what we see is in a horrible scene, which we're going to see a little bit later, is her killing herself um, on their anniversary. On the train tracks, yeah. No, no, not the train tracks. Killing herself by jumping oh, out the window. Oh, in, in real life. Like, in real life. Yes, yes, well, yes. Well, that's the well, question. Supposedly real life, right. Because, exactly. because it could be mm -hmm. that, the, the, that he's still in the dream and has yeah. never come out. Right. And that she killed herself and is now playing with her kids in the real world. Yeah. If she's right... Then he, and he's wrong. He's still dreaming the dream, right? And that because what's going on? He can't see the faces of his kids, right? You know, which is a very common thing in a dream to not be able to see someone's face. Yeah. Um. And, and, and oh, sorry. Go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. Well, and just because what she's saying is that the kids that you're seeing are projections right. in the dream. Right. Right. See, I think it's so ironic that this scene of flashback is right after he has once again manipulated people into a selfish desire. He manipulates Mal by putting this idea in her head. Clearly, this a-hole hasn't learned his lesson. <laughs> and here he is again manipulating real, what, what we believe are real people, at least the way the movie presents it, real people into, almost, into possibly dooming them into the same situation that he and Mal were in forever possibly. And so 
whatever his lament about what he did, oh, I really feel bad about what I did to Mal is absolute bullshit because he hasn't learned his lesson and he's doing it again with more people than just Mal. Yep. So, you know, either he's a heartless SOB or this is all a dream. So, yeah. Or both. In my opinion. Or both. Or both. Or both. Very true. <laughs> um, and now we're finally going to see it, which is we walk into this hotel room. It's the same room we saw before when Ariadne was there. He steps on that champagne glass. It makes that same high-pitched harmonic sound, yeah. which is very evocative. And he looks around, and she's out on the window ledge. And this scene is just, it, you're right, it's great. It's brutal. Sweetheart, what are you doing? Join me. Just, just step back inside. All right? Just step back inside now. Come on. No. I'm going to jump and you're coming with me. Because she can't go, but she needs him to come back and be the father to their kids in the real world. Yeah. So it makes, and he's the one with the problem because in Limbo, he convinced her that it was a dream and convinced her to kill herself. Yeah. And now she's just trying to do exactly what he did. Yeah. She gets him to come out on the ledge because she says, come out on the ledge or I'll jump right now. And so he does. Um, and then she drops a shoe, which I think is a great directorial choice because it gives you a sense of the height. Yeah. I'm asking you to take a leap of faith. No, honey. No, I can't. You know, I can't do that. Take a second, think about our children. Think about James. Think about Philippa now. If I go without you, they'll take them away anyway. Then she brings down the hammer, basically, which is she did the classic... If I die, yeah. I, my, I've told these lawyers and all sorts of people that you're abusive and threatening my life, so they're going to take the kids away. Right. Um, that's so brutal. I know, it's brutal. It's so brutal. But he has no one to blame but himself, if, he, if you believe his story, that he put the idea in her head. Yeah. And she says, I freed you from the guilt of leaving them. We're going home to our real children. No, 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 no. Ma, you listen to me, all right? Ma, look at me, please. You're waiting for a train. Ma, goddammit, don't do this. A train that will take you far away. James and Philippa are waiting for you. know where you hope this train will take you. They're waiting for us. You're not sure. Ma, look at me. But it doesn't matter. Ma, goddammit. Because you'll be together. Which is, we later find out exactly what he said to her when they, because how were they waiting for a train? Yeah, on the tracks, laying down on the tracks. Their heads on the tracks. Yeah, yeah. And he screams at her, and then she jumps. Sweetheart, look at me. Oh, no! Jesus Christ! DiCaprio is such a good actor. He is. He is. Yeah. And that scene, no, no, uh, just the reaction, the emotional yeah. reaction, you know, uh, the helplessness in that moment and the tragic uh, sense of it all. And Nolan lingering on her falling just long enough yep. for us to feel her yep. death. Ugh. And and then we see and then we find out that what she said is exactly right. And we kind of go back to seeing that lawyer with the plane ticket and the kids yeah. and and he leaves. Yeah. And and the when they come back to him telling the story, Steve, yeah, the look on his face is incredible. He's great. He's it, it's so funny how you experience who a person is as an actor. Mm -hmm. Because 
he was in my mind, and by the way, it's really weird. One of the true signs of getting old is when people that you knew as child actors are playing old parts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not just adult parts. But right, like, right, right. Because in, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he's over the hill. Yeah. Ah! <laughs> and I'm like, no, you were a kid. I must be old. But I remember like seeing him on Titanic and going, yeah. hey, that that's he's kind of a young he's a pretty good leading man, you know, right. like, uh, surprising, but more in the sense of, Oh, this kind of kid actor, you know, yeah, he, he, he can be an actor. Oh, that's cool. And it took several movies where I went, Oh no. Yeah. This guy is the real deal. Right. Yeah. He's a great actor. And you're going to have to confront her, but you don't have to do that alone. No, no, no. I'm doing it for the others because they have no idea the risk they've taken coming down here with um, and it's like, well, why don't you tell them? <laughs> yeah, right. Like Arthur's right over there, and Eve. Like, what's you know? Let them know. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, guys with guns show up. You have to move. Time's up. All right. I don't know any combination, not consciously anyway. Uh, now we just threaten robbers. Like, tell us the first six numbers that come into their head. He doesn't say anything. They put the gun on Browning, and now he spews out some numbers. And they bag him and throw him into a van. And we're under attack from the projections. And Arthur is firing back on them and not doing very well. And Eves walks up and says, You mustn't be afraid to dream a little bigger, darling. <laughs> and pulls out a grenade launcher and wipes him out. It's great. Great moment. And we're in the van. We're driving around and we say that security will be worse on the next level because as each level you drive deeper, the subconscious projections get stronger. That is not true. I think (laughs) I don't mean that it's not true in the dream world. I mean that the, the, the intensity of the attack that happens right away when they get in the cab opening fire with automatic weapons is way more intense than what happens in the hotel in the next right. level. Or even in the snow. Well, then you have, that, that's like a fortress. So that, right. that one, I actually right. think it is more intense, but the, yeah. the hotel is like, there's not guns and, right. you know, it happens much more slowly. The security is going to be all over us. We run with Mr. Charles like we did on the Stein job. So you've done it before. Yeah, and it didn't work. The subject realized he was dreaming and his subconscious tore us to pieces. Excellent, but you learned a lot, right? You need some kind of distraction. No problem. How about a lovely lady that I've used before? Listen to me, you drive carefully, all right? Yeah, and everything down there is going to be unstable as hell. And don't jump too soon because we don't want to miss the kick. Right. And then we push the button. And now we're in another dream world. In this hotel, again, this is all built on sets. Uh, I think this was shot in London. Yeah. Uh, Robert's talking to a beautiful blonde. And Cobb kind of walks up and says that he's from marketing or something like that. And the blonde leaves and says, in case you get bored, and writes her number on a, on a napkin. And Cobb goes, man, that's a weird way to blow you off. That is unless her phone number really is only six digits. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, this, this is the number from the safe. Funny way to make friends, someone stealing your wallet like that. And Robert starts to say the same thing that he said, by the way, in the cab. Yeah, man. Wallet alone's worth at least About $500, right? Listen, don't worry about it. My people are already on it as we speak. And we also hear, again, it's just lots of exposition, Arthur explaining to Ariadne. It's a gambit designed to turn Fisher against his own subconscious. And why don't you approve? Because it involves telling the mark that he's dreaming, which involves attracting a lot of attention to us. Didn't Cobb say nothing to do that? Mm. So now you've noticed how much time Cobb spends doing things he says never to do. <laughs> well, this yeah. is my thing. Arthur, know, he knows about Mal. Yep. 
He knows Cobb's continually breaking the rules, and he knows Cobb lied to them about the sedative, and yet he continues to just go along with it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like a um, good second in command. Yeah. Yeah. Saito and the blonde enter the elevator. And that's when we find out that the blonde is actually Eames. Um, <laughs> and the elevator starts to shake. And Saito says, and Saito's doing much better now. He feels much better because we've gone down to the other level. Right. And he asks, Turbulence on the plane? No, it's much closer. It's useless driving. And we see glass shaking. And Cobb is talking to Robert. And then he says, My name is Mr. Charles. You remember me, don't you? I'm the head of your security down here. I am here to protect you. And we hear the same high-pitched harmonic that we heard before. Mm-hmm. We see the kids. And Cobb gets distracted by the kids for a moment. Yep. And when this happens, people in the dream world start to turn towards him. Yeah. Because he's starting break- to notice him. Yeah, yep. they're breaking the rules. Yep. You know, and this is what, what's going to happen, and it's going to be hard to explain. We're con- going to continually go between levels. Yep. So now we have Yusuf driving and cars coming after him in the level one of the dream. Right. And in level two of the dream in the hotel, we have weather going uh, wrong and there's the world starts to shake. What's happening? Cobb's drawing Fisher's attention to the strangeness of the dream, which is making his subconscious look for the dreamer from me now this is arthur's dream right so we have yusuf's dream designed by ariadne where robert created the the projections that are trying to kill them and Cobb created the uh freight train and yusuf created the rain because he had to pee and now we're in arthur's dream again created by ariadne where eames is coming into different people where robert's awareness of the dream is starting to ruin things and this is what i don't understand when Robert becomes aware of the dream, yeah. the subconscious starts to turn towards him. Yeah. He's not the dreamer. Arthur is the dreamer, and he's right. aware of the dream the whole time. Right. But Cobb says the dreamer shouldn't know that they're in a dream because that'll mess things up. Well, that's why Eames, that's why um, Cobbs is having Eames do this because Eames has a delicate touch here, and he's trying to, because we're in Robert's dream, right? So we're trying to turn. No, no, we're in Arthur's dream. We're, I'm sorry, we're in Arthur's dream. They're trying to turn uh, uh, Robert, Robert into understanding that he's in a dream, right. so they so that he can so that when DiCaprio is pitching to him, uh, that uh, um, you know he's a he's a thing that was trained into his brain. He's actually the thing that was trained into his brain. Then he's turning it, turning off that situation where he starts to flip out. So he has to be aware that he's in the dream. So in the first level, he's not aware that he's in a dream. In the second level, he is aware that he's in a dream. uh, And he knows that he's been trained that in a dream, there will be protection for him from whatever training he's received. Cobb takes that and uh, assumes that mantle uh, in the dream. But it's shaky. And the reason everything starts to shake is because Arthur may wake himself up in that moment if Cobb Cobb is not convincing enough. Okay. Right. Or Fisher, I'm sorry. Fisher might wake himself up in that moment if Cobb is not. Uh, yes, but he, so here's here's the thing. I think that's everything you said. I think is right. Here, here's the weird thing about it. And and again, yeah. don't dig too deeply into this. It's probably not worth your time. When <laughs> we have the first scene with Ariadne in the cafe. Yes. He first tells her about. Right. It. Right. Right. She's the dreamer. No. And actually, no. It's not. Uh, the dreamer is Cobb. Oh, you mean when the things are blowing up and stuff yeah. on the street? Yes, yeah. that is Cobb, yeah. It's Cobb's dream, and he says to her, you shouldn't tell someone, oh, maybe this does make sense, because he says to her, you shouldn't tell someone who doesn't know they're in a dream 
that they're in a dream. Right. And then Cobb's subconscious turns on her. Right. Because she starts messing with the reality. Yes. I guess this does make sense. So we're in Arthur's dream. Right. It doesn't matter. It's and and Robert is like Ariadne was in the cafe, yeah. starting to become aware of the dream. And the subconscious is starting to turn on Arthur the way it turned on Ariadne. No, it doesn't make sense because the subconscious turned on Ariadne. Not I don't know. It's, it's very complicated. Let's stop. <laughs> Let's stop. I mean, I think, more. <laughs> but Arthur, the the reason Fisher's conscious subconscious is turning on Arthur's dream is because uh, who, it doesn't matter who's dreaming. Uh, your subconscious of whoever's right. inside the dream can affect the dream overall. Can affect yeah. Right. So Fisher's uh, you know shaking of the thing uh, is because Fisher is uh, is trying to get himself out of this dream. And that's why Cobb has to walk a tightrope to keep right. him understanding that he's in a dream not and, and not destroy the dream at the same time and trust that Cobb is his protector and will guide him at, through this situation. Right. And, of course, to add just more weirdness to all of this, Yusuf takes a hard turn yes. throwing centripetal force on us and the entire lobby of the hotel tilts. And this is so much work to get what is really a very small effect. It, I think it's brilliant what happens, is what Nolan wants yeah. is that everything doesn't tilt, but we see evidence of tilting through in the things that aren't locked down. Mm -hmm. And so you look at the glass of water and the water in the glass is tilted, or the uh, light fixtures hanging from the ceiling have all tilted, but right. everyone, because the camera is locked to the floor, all the people, and all the people are like strapped into their seats and stuff, yeah. um, are, are, are just upright as if nothing weird is happening. And the way they did this was they built a whole huge set on a gimbal that can tilt 25 degrees, when they auditioned the extras, they tested to see if the extras got seasick, <laughs> which about a third of them did. And they said, well, we can't cast you in this part because we can't. It's actually hard on your body to be tilted 25 degrees, but be mm. upright. And so they had to make sure that everyone could handle it. This is a massive, massive effect. Yeah. In terms of what you had to do, building a giant set on a 25 degree gimbal, locking the cameras down, everyone's strapped in place. The crew is all strapped in. You have all these, it's huge, huge effect to get something really small. Yeah. Which is tilted water in a glass and these light fixtures tilted, but it looks really cool. You feel that? You've actually been trained for this, Mr. Fisher. Pay attention to the strangeness of the weather, the shift in gravity. None of this is real. You're in a dream. And now at this moment, Robert starts to accept that he's in a dream. He remembers some of his training. He understands that uh, Cobb is a projection. And we go, okay, let's let's get you out of here. And they end, end up in a bathroom and some guys come in and he kills them immediately. Yeah. yeah. And Robert, of course, has a huge reaction to that. And he picks up a gun and he puts yeah. a gun to his head and says, if this is a dream, I should just kill myself to wake up. Right. I wouldn't do that if I were you, Mr. Fisher. I believe they have you sedated, and if you, if you pull that trigger, you may not wake up. And again, Robert accepts this, so we're making some progress. Think, Mr. Fisher, think. What do you remember from before this dream? Oh, there was, um, there was a lot of gunfire. There was rain on the pier. Oh my God, we've been kidnapped. And Cobb goes, oh, you were kidnapped in the real world. He's saying that was the real world, and you're in a van, and that's causing the gravity effects. They demanded the first numbers to pop into my head. They're trying to extract a number from your subconscious. It can represent anything. What was the number, Mr. Fisher? Try and remember for me. This is very important. This is a lot of stuff. Yeah, it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> in the lobby, 
uh, Saito sees Browning, Tom Berenger, right, and goes to talk to him, and it's assuming it's Eames. It's not Eames. Eames is there. This is now Robert's projection yeah. that he's created of Browning, and he is going to act in the way that Robert is thinking of him subconsciously at that moment. So if he acts like a good guy, it means they haven't planted the right seeds. Right. If he acts as a bad guy, then maybe they have. Said you were kidnapped together? Well, um, well, not, not exactly. They, are, they already had him. They were torturing him. And you saw them torture him. Robert realizes that Browning was behind everything and that he actually had set up the kidnapping. The kidnappers are working for you. Robert. You're trying to get that safe open? Is he getting alternate will? Which I don't quite understand how this all works because Browning was the one saying, no, he wants you to split up the company and that will be good for you. So then why does he end up wanting to split up the company later, which is what Browning wanted in the first place? Oh, good question. Um, and anyway, hmm. um, sorry, I'm trying to well, find because this. it's his idea, right? Instead of Browning's idea. Right. But then why but would he, Does he know that Browning want to, wants to do this? Because Browning is the one that tells him, your dad had this plan for you and he really did love you. That's what he kind of says in the kidnap scene in the right. rain, right. Dream, dream level one. Right. So, and that is in, if, if you cast Browning as the bad guy, Browning should want the opposite thing of what you want your mark to do. Right. But when he gets found out, he... Uh, it seems like he has his best interest at heart. So by saying this thing about wanting to break it up and blah, 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 he's saying, I don't want you to follow in your father's footsteps. I want you to make your own path because he's related to him, right? He says, I don't want you to follow it like your father did. By the way, Pete Postlewaite looks, looks nothing like, so it must be from the mother's huh? But like, <laughs> this, I'm just saying, but uh, you know, even though he's using nefarious means, he's doing it for a positive reason. And so uh, when he reveals that he's the guy that's behind this whole thing, or it's revealed to him in the dream that he's the guy behind the whole thing, it is because he wants him to be his own man. So it's, it's uh, legitimate reasons why he's doing it. So everything he's doing, in essence, uh, Robert, he, they want to plant in, in Robert's brain, but they want it to come from a family source. So it's easier to slide it into the safe. So when he opens it, it feels familiar and it feels right. And so because you've laid the groundwork or the, you've laid the seeds. Uh, I don't know. It's so, it, it's, so con it's so convoluted, which I guess dreams are. Yes. <laughs> because what he says is, he says, we talk about this will again. And, yeah. and what Browning, this version of Browning says, I couldn't let you rise to your father's last taunt. What right. taunt? The will, that's his last insult. Challenge to build something for yourself by telling you you're not worthy. Right. But this is, so he hates his dad. His dad was an asshole. I don't know if he hates his dad, but he's certainly hurt by his dad. He hurt yes. by his dad. And then we plant this idea in level one that yeah. dad had this will that mm -hmm. was his last gift to him right. of breaking up the company. Right. And this is when we reveal the disappointed thing. Right. In level two, this guy says it was a taunt. Oh, you know what? I do. I do get it. Actually, now I get it mm -hmm. because this Browning, this particular Browning is not part of their plan. Right. This particular Browning is just what he's thinking at this moment. And maybe he is, this is him resisting the idea that dad liked me because right. we hear that there's this will and that's evidence that dad liked me. And then in this level, Browning says, no, it was dad's last taunt. So this is yeah. his subconscious resisting 
the yes. idea that dad liked me. Okay, that yeah. makes more sense to me. Okay. And now we go, well, you know what? He's hiding something. <laughs> this version of Browning is hiding something. So we <laughs> have to go into his, which this isn't a Browning, this is a projection. We right. have to go into his subconscious and go another dream further to find out what he's hiding. And Robert goes, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then they... <laughs> They 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 pull out all their it's stuff crazy. to get ready to go, and now we hear that Arthur has got to stay behind and lead the security on a merry chase and protect them all and be ready yeah. for the kick, which all has to be coordinated. Um, <laughs> and they're about to go to sleep, and then Cobb looks at the window, and there's the shade blowing, which is exactly the shade from the hotel room where Mal killed herself. Yeah, you good? Hey, you ready? Yes, yes, I'm. I'm fine. I'm, I'm ready. And Ariadne, who sees the moment, says nothing. Right. Once again. <laughs> yeah. And now we're on a, a snowy mountain and Cobb's looking through a, a, a sniper rifle. Takes him a minute to figure it out. And they see this big fort, which they keep referring to as a hospital, which that doesn't really make sense to me. Mm. It looks. So, and by the way, this th- they wanted to do James Bond. Like they yeah. really, yeah. And, and, and Nolan said this is that he, his favorite James Bond, by the way, is Honor Majesty's Secret Service, which is oh. interesting. It's set in the snow. Set yeah. in the snow. And right. he wanted the big bad guy hideout. And he want and it's all the stuff you see in so many Bond movies and the oh, action sequences sense. we're going to get to. Yeah. Um, uh, and the way they found this is they needed a mountain that they could build this whole thing on. Yeah. And the DP had been shooting a commercial up in Calgary and he said in summer. And he went, mm-hmm. you know what? I think I found a great mountain. And they show up. They're shooting in November. Right. And it's iffy whether they're going to get snow. And they need their whole thing. Everything's based on that. They got to have snow. Right. And, you know, the costumes are snow. The action sequences are designed for snow. They're up one week before they have to shoot. No snow. Wow. The next day, huge storm, five-day <laughs> storm. And then they have tons of snow. Oh, that's great. That's so great. <laughs> That's how it goes, though, isn't it? That's how it goes. You know. If you're, if you're lucky. This is not how it's usually gone for me. <laughs> um, actually, there have been things where I was really lucky. Right. Really lucky. Uh, the hotel room's shaking because Yusuf is driving, and he's getting shot at. Arthur takes off the jacket, walks down the hall. Elevator opens. Some bad guys come out. Arthur is fighting them in the hallway, and the hallway starts to shift. And then Yusuf takes a hard turn in the hallway, the corridor that Arthur is fighting guys in, tilts. One guy flies down the length of the hallway. And that is, so there are, I think, two or three different hallways. Mm -hmm. One of the hallways, they build an entire vertical hallway. Right. And when they started, Nolan said, they said, we're going to build a 40-foot hallway. Mm. And then Nolan said, I think we need a 60-foot hallway. Right. This is a 100-foot hallway. Jesus. It is huge. And so first we built- 100 feet. 100 feet long. And first we built a vertical one for the guy to fall down. I don't know if that one's 100 feet long. Right. And then uh, Yusuf is driving and hits an an embankment and the car flips. Ah! Mm. And now inside the hallway is what I think is one of the most remarkable action sequences I've ever seen in my entire life. Yeah. Yeah. This is mind blowing, Mm -hmm. literally mind blowing. And I remember being in the theater and just my jaw dropped. (laughs) 
And what's funny is we, we know what the technology is here. We've seen it in two movies that I can think of that we've done. Right. And, and this comes from a movie we didn't do, which is it's, uh, it's Royal Wedding, which is directed oh. by Stanley Donnan. And this right. is Fred Astaire dancing on the ceiling. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say it takes it and goes next completely, not even next level, like next 10 levels well, next, by doing it like this. Next level is 2001. We already talked about the 2001 right. stuff. Good but them on the, on the spaceship. Um, and then running around, and that's a big set on a gimbal. And, yep. You know, so so or not on a gimbal. It's a big set uh, that can rotate 360 degrees, and right. the camera's locked down. So from the interior perspective, it doesn't look like anything is changing. But but in fact, the whole set is rotating around. The other one, by the way, we saw it is Richard Dreyfus in the pickup truck in Close oh, yeah. Encounters. Close Encounters, right? Same effect. But this version of it is the biggest that I think anyone's ever done. I can't imagine there's a bigger one. It's a hundred foot long hallway. <laughs> it's built onto a huge rig that has steel rings, huge steel rings that right. can rotate through this machine. Like you imagine a giant like Ferris wheel or, or like a hallway on 12 extended Ferris wheels, mm -hmm. you know, and that's how this whole thing, it's structural steel, it's mounted to discs. Yeah. Um, it is super hard on the actors. I'm sure. Because, and, and the stuntmen. Physically. Physically brutal. Yeah. Um, Joseph Gordon-Levitt did it all. This is all wow. him. Wow. He was there week for weeks training how to do this he said every day he came home bruised and beat up cool. um it took a, what, he, what they all describe is it takes a lot of mental discipline mm -hmm. because if you look in the wrong place you're going to throw up right because you're moving around because visually what's happening yeah because because the way motion sickness happens one of the big things is was your inner what your inner ear is telling your brain doesn't match what your eyes are telling your brain right you know so if you're inside the ship that's moving around a lot your horizon stays still, but you're moving. Your brain doesn't know what to do. Right here, you're in this world, and the world is all everything is wrong. <laughs> so, so you had to know when to look, and you also had to anticipate what was going to happen with the floor in the midst of doing a really complicated action sequence. Right. My God, I, I can't. I mean, most actors, you know, uh, Brian Cox. I asked him how much research do you do on Succession and blah. He goes, oh, I don't, I don't study all those financial. I just uh, say the lines and try to hit my marks and not knock over the furniture. This is a whole other thing, you know, because you're trying Furniture's not to. going to knock over you. Exactly. And you're yeah. trying not to throw up and you're being moved all around. It's madness. Absolute yeah. madness. Yeah. Um, they have a huge fight in the hallway and then they up, end up in the room and the room is also rotating. This was even more dangerous. Oh, I can imagine. And the reason the room is more dangerous, I didn't, I didn't occur to me at all. The hallway is like nine feet by nine feet by nine feet. It's square. Mm -hmm. And if you mess up, the worst that's going to happen is you fall nine feet. Right. That's the worst that's going to happen. The room that they fight in is nine feet on the walls, but it's 20 feet uh, on the length of the floor. So it's not even. So the worst that happens that there is you fall 20 feet. Wow. Which is really scary. And the other thing that they're doing is that because of that difference in danger and the way they had to move is the yeah. hallway is rotating at a constant speed. The room is slowing up and speeding up and slowing down, depending on whether you're rotating, whether the guys are fighting on the floor or fighting on the wall or fight, mm -hmm. fighting on the ceiling. So it is really, really, really complicated stuff. Wow, man. And Arthur, again, is a badass. Yeah. He just never stops, and he just keeps just wiping these. I mean, it's so cool. Um, have you had dreams where you are fighting a bunch of people? 
bunch of people, yes, but oh, that is such a rare dream, you know. Um, but it's but I usually don't win. So I fight a bunch of people, and then run away. Basically, like I fight a bunch of people to be able to survive the situation, and then run away, and then I wake up. Um, so yeah, how about you? Uh, there was a time I haven't had this dream in a while, but I had a okay. dream, kind of a repeating dream for a while, where I was sort of like you know, like zombie kind of people were coming at me. Yeah. Yeah. And I was fighting multiple people and I was doing the coolest martial arts jump kicks and spinning kick and everything was working. And I was like, this is amazing. Like this it's working, <laughs> you know, all this stuff that I'd done for so many years. Right. And I was just like, this is awesome. And the zombie people, they kept coming. Oh, wow. And no matter how hard I hit them. Right. They would keep getting up and coming back. This is like I, house of the dead type of thing. I mean, kind of, I mean, it's not, I, okay. I don't know. I mean, like okay. it was, it, there were people and no matter how many times I kicked them or hit them or knock them down, they get up and keep coming. Right. And I remember the emotional shift from, and I had this dream more than once, not in a long time, but right. I remember the emotional shift from I'm awesome. This is right. great to I'm going to make a mistake. You know, <laughs> at some point I, they're going to keep, if they just keep coming. Right. I'm doomed. They're going to win. They're going to kill me, you know? Yeah. And like the, just, and then the dream got really, really scary. And then I, and they would like kind of pile on top of me in like typical zombie sort of fashion. And then I would wake up. Right. Yeah. Wow. I had, I had that dream a lot. Wow. We're back on this snowy mountain and we have some discussion of who's going to go with whom and that Saito's going to go with Robert and he spits a little blood. So we know that he's getting worse on level one of the dream. You're not coming in. In order to find out the truth about your father, you're going to need to break into Browning's mind on your own. <laughs> you got to make active license, uh, active. Uh, what do they call that? Uh, you've got to take active. You were just saying it earlier, right? This the difference between uh, active lying and passive. Lying. Oh, this right, is right. Like, he's he's got to make uh, more. Of the the active choice. Yeah. Yeah. The active choice. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I guess the plan is that. I don't quite understand what the plan is. Ariadne staying with Cobb. I don't quite know yeah. what they're supposed to do. Right. Eames is going to go off and I guess distract the bad guys or something. Yes. And yeah. Saito is going to break into the base with Robert. Right. Um, someone fires a flare, which I guess is Eames. Yeah. But I don't quite understand. Maybe it's to draw the guys out. That's what I think is to try okay. attract attention and move them okay. out of the area. Yeah. And, th and this is where we get into the full sort of James Bond stuff. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, Yusuf is now really under pressure from the bad guys driving the van. And he just kind of goes, look, it's a little early, but I got to make this happen now. Yeah. And he puts headphones on our guys and starts playing Edith Pilaf's Je ne regrette rien. That was my terrible French accent. Thank you, everyone. The title of that song is No, I Regret Nothing. <laughs> it's a great choice and i wonder if it's a choice because marianne cotillard won that oscar playing edith pf and levy and rose i yeah. know i did, totally forgotten that yeah that's yeah. interesting um and we hear the song echoing through the hotel and arthur says it's too soon and then eames radios to Cobb and says did you hear that i first noticed it 20 minutes ago but i thought it was the wind I love that moment because it's, it kind of explains what the time dilation is. Yeah, yeah. Which is kind of cool. And that means that Yusuf is going to do the jump in 10 seconds, which means Arthur has three minutes and we have an hour. Wow, yeah. And we got to figure out how to get this all done. And part of it is they need a more direct route. Um, and 
And he's talking to Ariadne and said, look, you must have designed like a shortcut or something, right? I don't think I should tell you if Maul finds out. We don't have time for this. Did he add anything? He added an air duct system that can cut through the maze. (laughs) Why couldn't she just tell, like Cobb put fingers in his ears and walked 10 feet away. And then she tells them without telling him. (laughs) (laughs) It's a fair point. And the reason I think is that this is a dream. Yep. Is that it's Cobb's dream. Right. It's not Yusuf's dream. It's not Arthur's dream. It's not Browning's dream. It's not Robert's dream. Right. It's Cobb's dream. So he has to know. Yeah. If if we want to have that theory. Right. And we have more James Bond stuff with Eames just wiping out these guys. He knocks them off with a rope. He's on a, a snowmobile. He jumps on the, you know, he's doing just badass stuff. Yeah. And again, this is where I go. It's Mission Impossible, and Ethan Hunt is the least cool guy. Cobb's just sitting there. He's literally doing nothing other than <laughs> finding out the route into the building so he can subconsciously tell Mal how to ruin everything. Yeah. And then Yusuf goes backwards off the bridge. And Arthur goes flying, and an avalanche starts. The slow motion of him going off the bridge, which is a bridge in Los Angeles, super cool. It's so good, man. Yeah. It's 1,000 frames per second. The bridge is in San Pedro. This was really hard to shoot. And Arthur is in now just kind of floating. And again, yeah. total badass. He's right. the key card. He goes in the room. The image of all the sleeping people floating, super, super cool. Yeah. Um, apparently, it's what's funny. This is the one thing they said. We had to use all different techniques to do zero gravity. And I couldn't find anywhere where they said what those techniques were. So I can't tell you how they did all that stuff. And now we're going to do this constant back and forth from the van to Arthur moving the bodies towards the elevator shaft to our guys at the base trying to break in. And we're going to go back and forth. I'm not going to go through all of them yeah, yeah. um, because it's just a lot. Um, (laughs) Arthur has a zero gravity fight with a guy in a hallway. He takes them out. Cobb is looking through the sniper rifle. And we know that there's like a strong room or something that's in the middle of the, of the place that that she designed. And Robert and Saito have made it inside to where the big strong room is. And then we see someone climbing down behind him from above. Cobb is on him, on her, on this person with the sniper rifle. And then of course we see that it's Mal. The moment, like immediately you're like, oh no. Like, it's just this fear, which is exactly what she had feared in telling him uh, what was going to be ha- the back door that Mal would find a way into uh, the dream. Here's, the, here's the, what's weird, though. She doesn't go in through the air duct. No, she doesn't. She comes from another direction. Mm-hmm. So it didn't. That isn't how Mal found out no. how to get in there. No. But really, if it's if Cobb, it's his subconscious. It doesn't. If he sees, he knows where they are. He can see them through the sniper rifle. Right. So it's easy for Mal to find them. No, she, she is not real. How do you know that? She's just a projection. Fisher, Fisher is real. And Mal shoots Fisher. Yeah. Uh, and he goes right down. Eames comes through the air vent and finds Fisher. And then Car- Cobb and Ariadne are there. Malco Fisher? Good shooter. Why haven't we been talking about Mal this whole time? It <laughs> seems to be a real problem. Um, and they start to try to revive him. And, and Cobb's like, no, it's no use. He's already down in limbo. Right. And this is where Ariadne comes up with a plan. No, there's still another way. We just have to follow Fisher down there. Not up time. No, but there, there will be enough time down there. Okay, as, as soon as Arthur's music kicks in, 
Just use the defibrillator to revive him. We can give him his, his own kick down below. As soon as the music ends, you blow up the hospital and we all ride the kick back up the layers. Because, oh, the other thing that we've talked about is there's, a, there's really two kicks. Yeah. We missed kick one, which was them going off the bridge. Right. Kick two is the van hitting the water. Wait, uh, yeah. I, I thought the kicks are, it's not, it's when they hit the water is the first kick. Then when the elevator crashes into uh, the top of the uh, shaft is the second kick. And then the third kick is the defibrillator. That's what brings them all out. We're, we're using different terms. Okay. So, so you're correct that the, those are the kicks at this time. The first kick that they missed was them going off the bridge. Oh, they that missed it. Too, they right. missed it because gotcha. that was too soon. Right, right, right. Gotcha. Find <laughs> <laughs> my place in these notes. Um, and and part of our it. plan is that Saito, who is now clearly dying, has to try to keep off the guards. Yeah as long as he can and Eames is going to try to hold them off as long as they can and we know Mal is going to be down at Limbo and we know that she's going to have Fisher and Cobb knows where she'll be and the big question is will Cobb be able to do what he has to do what he failed to do the last time which mm-hmm. is to kill this part of his subconscious that's ruining everything Right. and then we go to sleep again into our now fourth level of dreaming which is Limbo and Ariadne wakes up in the surf and again, I just want to point out Hans Zimmer's score for this is such a, it's just a sound field. Yeah. It's just sound. Um, it's, it's not melodic, you know, they're not themes, no light motifs. It's just, and, and this is what uh, Nolan said. He loves working with Hans Zimmer. And so everything I've said about film scoring in other episodes really doesn't apply here. Like you're working with John Williams, you're going to have a spotting session, you're going to come up with your light motifs, you're going to go through and say, I want this beat to happen here. And this emphasizes this. And now we have rising and lowing. That's not how he worked with Hans Zimmer at all. Mm. He didn't give him cue points. He wanted sound. Um, he wanted, he didn't tell Hans Zimmer anything. He wants him to be very free with his ideas. They played with a lot of music. He comes up with a lot of music. And then rather than having a spotting session to fit the music to the film, they just take the music and edit it in. So they're not writing the music to a particular moment. They're just writing music. It's very, it's even more electronics than Dark Knight was. Mm -hmm. Lots of ambiences and atmospheric tracks. They created a lot of it electronically. And then later they gave it to an orchestra and had the orchestra imitate the electronic sounds, Mm. which again is the opposite. Like normally when you do synth, you're having your synthesizer imitate instruments within the orchestra. So you have synth uh, strings, you have synth oboe or whatever. This is the opposite. We create a bunch of synth sounds and then we have our violins do our best to sound like that stuff. Right. That is weird. <laughs> the only, the main yeah. instrument that we have is we have an electric guitar, which is played by Johnny Moore, who was the guitarist from the Smiths. Mm. That's depressing. That's depressing. I know. Everything <laughs> <a> depressing movie. <laughs> We're on the beach. We see yeah. this world that is crumbling. The designs are beautiful. And this is a lot of digital stuff yeah, at this point. I hope so. And again, it, it's, it's reminiscent of where we saw them first build, sandcastles. Yep. Yep. Sandcastles are falling down. And they walk into this collapsing city. By the way, this was shot back in Morocco, where they had shot some of the other stuff. And they have sort of the basis of the city from the city on the street in Morocco, which they took over. And then the rest is enhanced digitally. Mm-hmm. And they even flooded the street of Morocco in order to have them walking out of the water. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. 
because Nolan pulls no punches. <laughs> um, and, and we see this city that they built, it goes on forever. Yeah. And now just I'll catch you up on where we are in the other dreams. The van's like halfway down now. Uh, mm-hmm. Arthur has gone into the elevator with all his floating bodies. He's gone up the roof. I can't tell sometimes if he's going up the elevator shaft or down the elevator shaft, yeah. which I think is cool. And we see him doing stuff and the guards are starting to move in on Eames and Saito. And Saito, by the way, who's, you know, dying, says, repeats what had been said to him. No room for tourists on these jobs. Yeah. And uh, Eames gives him a grenade. And we're in the crumbling city in limbo. And he kind of describes like they built their lives step by step. They built their first apartment, their first house, the house Mal grew up in. And they're going up to this really cool building with kind of water all around and all this futuristic stuff in the different distance. And we're watching Karen said, that's the LA DWP building in downtown Los Angeles, which it totally is. Oh, wow. Really okay. cool building right off Hope <laughs> street. And okay. what they do is they have a, a green screen so that they're creating the background, but mm-hmm. the kind of pathway that goes through the water to the building, that's just LA DWP. Damn. Okay. <laughs> and he says something you should know about me about inception. An idea is like a virus, resilient, highly contagious, and the smallest seed of an idea can grow. It can grow to define or destroy you. This is exactly what he said to Saito at the very beginning of the movie. And then we finally get to Mal. The smallest idea, such as your world is not real. Simple little thought that changes everything. We're starting to get what the inception was, is that, because he said, I did it once. Well, the person he did it with is Mal. So certain of your world, of what's real, do you think he is? Or do you think he's as lost as I was? (laughs) I like the past tense, as I was, Mm because now Mal knows what she's doing. And Cobb says, I know what's real, Mal. And she says, no creeping doubts, not feeling persecuted, dumb. Chased around the globe by anonymous corporations and police forces, the way the projections persecute the dreamer. That's right on the money. Yep, it you is. Know, yeah, it's exactly what his life is like. Mm-hmm. And there isn't a lot of difference between the quote unquote real world and the worlds down here for Cobb. You know what I have to do? I have to get back to our children because you left them, because you left us. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're confused. Our children are here, and you'd like to see their faces again, wouldn't you? That's the key when she says, would you like to see their face? She knows he can't see his face. So once again, either she's really knowledgeable, or this is the dream. Once again, Cobb, this whole, you know, who else would know but Cobb that he can't see the faces? And she even calls the kids, and he's like, no, 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 those aren't my kids. Yeah. You keep telling yourself what you know, but what do you believe what do you feel? I feel guilt, Mom. And this is where it finally comes out. And no matter what I do, no, no matter how hopeless I am, no matter how confused, that guilt is always there reminding me of the truth. What truth? That the idea that caused you to question your reality came from me. And that's it. The inception was the doubt. Yep. And that doubt, if we believe the, what we've been told, that doubt went with her into the real world, and that is why she killed herself. Yep. So he is responsible for her death. Or that's how he feels. We were lost in here. 
I knew we needed to escape, but she wouldn't accept it. Nolan does a great job of repeating these images. The image of her locking up the top, the image of her touching the knife, the champagne glass, the window, the kids. All these images take on significance because he repeats them. Mm -hmm. Um, And now we find out that not only did he do an inception, but he did an extraction because he searched through her dream Mm -hmm. to find the top. Um, And that is where he has the evidence that it wasn't real. He puts that idea in in her brain and then we see them lay down on a track, except now we discover that they actually have grown old. Yes. Uh, which I love. Because before we saw them, they were young. Right. Because um, when he says 50 years, it was they really grew old together. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we hear these words again. You're waiting for a train. A train that'll take you far away. You know where you hope this train will take you. But you can't know for sure. And it doesn't matter. Now tell me why. And the train is coming right towards their heads, which are laying on the track. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great and brutal, brutal image. Yeah, man. Yeah. Because it's figurative and literal. Yep. Do you know what I'm saying? He kills her, but he also kills her mind. So it's like, it's, you know, it's so tragic. And the trust in her eyes when she's staring at him is even more brutal, just more brutal, man. And this is really what life is. We hope that our life is going to take us in a, a, a certain direction, but we can never know. Yeah. You know, and sure. you could make all your plans and all your ideas that I want to get to there. And we don't know where we're going to get. And the, and the only solace that he really plants with her, because the big thing that she has in her head is we're going to be, we're going to grow old together. Right. And we're going to be together forever. So even if the train doesn't take us where we want, we're going to be together and that's okay. Yeah. What is his real betrayal? In his mind, his betrayal is I planted the seed in her brain that led her to kill herself. Mm-hmm. In her mind, his betrayal is you didn't go with me. I went with you when you wanted me to leave the dream world. I trusted you. You did not trust me when I wanted to leave the dream yeah. world. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. right. Great point. And, yep. and that is exactly what we play. We go through those same sequences again until she jumps out of the off the ledge of the hotel window. Again, it's really, really brutal. And it's it's the brutality of the moment is magnified by the fact that we now have the knowledge of why he blames himself. Right. right. You know. Mm-hmm. And and here it is again. We could be together. Yeah. We'd be together forever. Yeah. Um and we of course we're gonna check in with the other stories, which are really just I, by the way, I think there are too many check-ins. <laughs> like, because like, what you need to do, and we talked about before, is yeah. you need to keep your s- secondary stories alive. Yeah. You need to keep your characters alive. You can't just forget them. So you have to do the check-ins. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this movie goes back and forth too many times. I think it's okay. probably too, in my opinion, there are too, too many check-ins. If okay. I were the editor, I would take two out. So, okay, Emperor, those are the notes you would take out? All right. Yes, those are my notes. One too many notes. <laughs> There's only so many notes that the human here can hear. Um, uh, it, took, it took me a second to figure out what you were referencing. <laughs> yeah, I had to. I had to throw the other one on top. <laughs> yeah, then I got it. Then it was. Then it was cool. Arthur plays the music, and so the music once again is echoing throughout the world. The van is almost to the water. Eames hears the song. He puts the defibrillator on Robert. We're setting up all our kicks to happen simultaneously. 
and now there's thunder and lightning and storms down in limbo. We need to get Fisher. You can't have him. If I stay here, will you let him go? What are you talking about? Fisher's on the porch. She's like, no, you can't stay with Mal. I'm not. Saito's dead by now. That means he's down here somewhere. It means I have to find him. And Mal, I love this moment too. Cobb says, I can't imagine you with all your complexity, all your perfection, all your imperfection. You're just a shade. You're just a shade of my real wife. And you were the best that I could do, but I'm sorry, you're just not good enough. That's great. Yeah. And I think in the conception of the movie that we do buy everything that he's saying and that this there is a real world and this is his subconscious and he must destroy his guilt and the demon of Mal in his subconscious in order to move forward his character. I think this moment totally works. Yeah. You know, for me. And what does she do? She stabs him. Yeah. And Ariadna, does Ariadna shoot her? Yes. And she grabs Fisher and Cobb asks, what she's do- what are you doing? And she says, improvising. And she pushes Fisher off the balcony. So that's going to be his kick, yeah. Arthur has now blown up the elevator, and the van is almost just hitting the water. So all of our kicks are happening simultaneously. Yeah. And Robert is now woken up because he fell, had his kick in the limbo world. He opens up the giant door to the strong room, right. and there is his dad in the middle of this strange room in a hospital bed. Did you think of 2001? Oh, this is so the well, old man in the weird space. Sounds good. Sounds I, good. I think there's a lot of 2001. Yeah. And dad is saying, dis, uh, dis, uh, and we know the word is disappointed. Right. Except now when Robert leans in, he says, I know you were disappointed. I couldn't be you. No, no. I was disappointed that you tried. Yeah. It's a good, good twist. Yeah, right. And dad directs him to the safe and he opens it and there's the will and he starts to cry. Yeah. But it's not because of the will. Below the will, he finds a pinwheel, which seems to be some evidence that of his of his father's love for him when he was a child that he was never able to express. Yeah. Like he locked away his love. Yeah. And now all the kicks are happening. So the explosions are going off, the elevator's crashing, you know, the van hits the water, Cobb looks around and the city is falling. He tells Ariadne to go and they wake up in the hotel and then in the van. By the way, with the this set that's gonna blow up in the snow, they built the whole set and they built a giant miniature. And when I say a miniature, it is huge. Yeah. The miniature that they blew up is 45 feet tall. <laughs> so they built a huge version of this to blow up. They actually did blow up the set on the mountaintop too, but they weren't happy with it because the big tower fell the wrong way. I don't know which way it was supposed to fall or why that was bad. So they said, well, we're going to get it on the miniature. They built it on the miniature and the big tower fell the wrong way. (laughs) So you know what they did? They built the 45 foot miniature again and blew it up again and got the tower to fall the right way. (laughs) We're back in limbo. And again, Mal goes the same thing she said before. You remember when you asked me to marry you? You said you dreamt that we grow together. But we did. And we see them as old people wandering through their city. And I love that. I think that's another great bit of writing, a great mm-hmm. bit of resolution. And now we have the van sinking in the water. Yeah. And Robert swims out with Browning, which, of course, we know is Eames. You know, the will means that Dad wanted me to be my own man. Not just to live for him. 
That's what I'm going to do, Uncle Peter. And as the camera pans by Robert and Browning sitting on the edge of the water, Browning becomes Eames in another very, very slickly done transformation. And now we go full circle. We are back at the beginning of the movie. I'm waiting for someone. Someone from a half-remembered dream. And then he looks at him and he says, God, impossible. We were young men together. I'm an old man. Filled with regret. Waiting to die alone. Come back for you to remind you of something. Something you once knew. And we see this top spinning. To convince me to honor our arrangement. To take a leap of faith, yes. There's so much in here, yeah. I think, yeah. that is symbolic. First of all, these are words we've now repeated many, many times. Yeah. We have things like the spinning top to create the idea that what you're in is a dream, which is exactly the inception that led Mal to kill herself. Yeah. We're talking about taking a leap of faith, and that is what Mal asked him to do that he would not do when she killed herself. Right. They're talking about being young men together again. Together again is what Mal wanted him to be, and what she said that he swore that they would do by growing old together. So we yeah. have your promise to me is growing old together and his promise to Saito is being young together. Yeah. There's so much kind of in here and we have this, I'm an old man filled with regret. Yeah. Cause the other thing, I think the person who is really an old man filled with regret in this film is Cobb. Yeah. Cause he did get old in the dream. Right. Mm -hmm. So well, and he lived 50 years. He's yeah. an old soul. Who's gone back to a young body. Yep. Great point, Steve. Great point, man. Well, and Saito, who is an old man, yeah. has been in limbo, you know, for who knows, decades, centuries. Yeah. Cobb has been in limbo almost as much time, mm -hmm. and yet he is not old. Right. And I think he's not old because he has maintained the knowledge that this is a dream. Right, right. So that is what's keeping him young. But in terms of years, if he lived 50 years with Mal, and let's say Cobb is 35, so that means a total of 85 years. Mm -hmm. And then he's been searching for Saito for fi another 50 years. Yeah. Cobb is 150 years old or something right. like that. Right. You know, in terms of his life experience. Yeah. We see the hand reach for the gun, past the top, and now we're on the plane. And the flight attendant hands him a hot towel and hands him the immigration papers. And she gives Robert the immigration papers, who we see is deep in thought. Mm -hmm. And Cobb looks over at Arthur and they smile and Ariadne's there. And then he looks over at Saito who sees him. And I think the, the performances and the looks between them are really good. Yeah. And I think it, I, I wish that it took longer for Saito to pick up the phone. I wish that it took, uh, I wish that uh, there was more between Ariadne and Cobb mm. because she should be relieved that he came back. She's more like, smiling and just kind of like the standard uh, feel good ending but i wanted more there so I, I get your point totally a little bit of a pop a longer beat before saito makes the phone call but i also would have liked a little more between ariadne and Cobb because they had made that such a central part of this uh, moment before all this stuff goes down and they wake up on the plane 
all the final stuff goes down and then wake up on the plane. Well, let me address the Saito thing first. If I, yeah. every time that I've spent a hundred years trapped in a strange limbo world, <laughs> unaware that I'm not in a reality, and then I come back and find myself as a young man on an airplane, uh-huh. it usually takes me a few seconds to adjust. <laughs> so that's why I wish that moment were a little longer. I couldn't yeah. agree more about Ariadne. And this is, it's, yeah. it, I think that stems to the problem with her character throughout, which is she's totally passive through the whole movie, yeah. except for the fact that she's the one who trusts Cobb the least right. and has the most insight into what's messed up about him. Yeah. Then at the end of the movie, she becomes totally in charge. And part of her in charge is I trust Cobb. That's what she's saying. She says, I trust Cobb to go with me into limbo. I'm going into limbo with the guy who I should trust the least. Right. Who The person who failed to kill Mal when I was right next to him and should have. And now I'm going to trust him to go and not only trust him to go into a thing, but then I come back out and say, oh, yeah, he went after Saito. I think he's going to come back. Right. And it's like, well, why? What reasons have you ever had to trust him? And then we get into the moment that you're talking about where in the plane where they just exchange a look. Yeah, she and Arthur are the two characters that make things problematic for me as I think about the movie more. Yeah, and but Saito makes the call, and then we get to immigration, and there's some hesitation, and he hands this passport to the guy in immigration, gets stamped, and he walks by Arthur, and he walks by Yusuf, walks by Robert, who kind of gives him a, "Do I know you?" look, <laughs> which I like. Yeah, and there is Michael Caine waiting for him. Uh, and shakes his hand totally randomly. It's Michael Caine. All right, who was in Paris? Yeah. I thought last we saw him. Yeah, but apparently he travels a lot, and they kind of said, "Hey, I'm coming home." Um, and then we go into this beautiful house, which, by the way, is shot in Pasadena, and it's in a green and green house, which is the uh, Doc Brown's uh, house in Back to the Future is also designed by Green and Green, also in Pasadena. And there was some rumor that my house was designed by Green and Green, which is why oh. I bring it up. Wow. But it probably isn't. Uh, okay. It probably was designed by like one of their disciples. Okay. But there's no actual evidence that these famous architects designed my house. Right. Um, but it's in the same era. My house was built in 1916. So not that that's important for you cinephiles out there. Um, <laughs> and now we're getting to the moment. We're back in the house, and what does he pull out but the top? And he puts it on the table, and he spins it. And then we hear the kids. Look who's here. And we see their faces. Yeah. And by the way, they look exactly the same age, which is to me one of the big pieces of evidence that this is a dream. Because little kids of that age grow fast. Yeah. But they look exactly the same age as we've seen them throughout the whole thing which means it's almost no time since he left. Yeah. But he sees them, he sees their faces, he goes and grabs them. He turns his back on the top, still spinning on the table. The camera moves in, the top spins, the top starts to shake the tiniest bit. It starts to waver. The music builds. And just at the moment where the top may or may not fall, we cut to black. This is the example of what an ambiguous ending is. Yep. Yep. And it is, I use it in class all the time because frequently, I think I said before, my students, when they have a movie that makes no sense at all and is totally confusing, I don't understand. They say, oh, well, it's meant to be ambiguous. Right. And what I always explain is like, no, ambiguity is something you plan out. Right. What you want is you want to control what I'm thinking. Right. You know, there's all sorts of ambiguity in 2001, but 
Kubrick is thinking about the things that he wants us to be thinking about. Yes. Not giving us answers. This is crystal clear what we don't know. Right. If the top falls, it's real. If the top doesn't fall, it's a dream. Right. We don't know. Exactly. Which is brilliant. Nolan says this is the question he gets asked more than any other question. So wait, was it a dream or was it not a dream? And what he thinks is so funny, which I think is too, is that like I would give you an answer. But yeah. I actually expect that he would go, yeah. okay, I've never told anyone before. But you, I'm right. going to tell. <laughs> like, there is no answer. That's the whole point. There is no spoon. Yeah. There is no spoon. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've woken up from the dream that is Inception, <laughs> but we have reached the end of the film. Uh, obviously, obviously, it's a big hit. It grossed $829 million. It's Listen. nominated for... Picture, screenplay, art directing, score. It won for cinematography, sound editing, mixing, and visual effects. Mm-hmm. I meant to look up what won that year. Uh, Social Network. Oh, of course. Well, yeah. no, right. No, King's Speech won. Oh. But Social Network should have won. But you could argue Inception as well. Um, I think I think Social Network's a much better. Well, I don't know if I'm going to say that on the podcast. <laughs> you could also argue Toy Story 3. Over King's Speech. You can make that argument. I totally like King's Speech. Yes. It moved me. It's a really good movie. But it goes into, to me, that one goes into the category of, it's not a movie for the ages. Yeah. You know what I mean? I totally like it. Right. Uh, I don't think it's an important film. Um, uh, I think Social Network, I think Social Network's one we're going to have to revisit this year. Right. I agree. Because I think... I haven't seen it in a long time, and I think it's a really prescient. I'm, let me put that a different way. I'm very curious to see how prescient it is. I feel like it it, it must be prescient, uh, and considering all that Zuckerberg is doing now, with uh, on the political side of things, and with uh, Facebook and uh, all, all the stuff on with Trump, like how can it not be prescient? Well, I don't you know. know. I, 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 I haven't seen it in a while. Yeah, because people criticized the portrayal and said it was a bit unfair to Zuckerberg, and I actually tweeted out and I said. The, the more we hear from him in this situation, over the last three years, the more we hear from him, the more I think that portrayal was actually lenient. Uh, and seeing the, the virtual walkout that happened uh, recently as well, and then having a former employee step out and say yesterday on CNN in an interview, as we're recording this, that he feels we're in trouble because Zuckerberg is not listening. That's scary. The biggest, the most important thing is that for no reason that I can understand, Facebook suspended my account three days ago and it has not come back yet really yeah i put up a black image for the blackout tuesday oh immediately my account was suspended wow i'm assuming that's what did it i don't know what happened but so many other people did explanation that's weird yeah it's weird it's weird yeah i mean i don't it's very strange and and they said we don't know if you're the right identity and prove who you are and i did and then they said well we'll get back to you wow yeah. And no explanation. Yeah. So clearly Facebook, you know, I mean, I think it's obviously Mark Zuckerberg is out to get me. <laughs> All right. I don't know if you'll will... include any of this, but okay. Interesting. <laughs> um, I'll give my final thoughts first. Yeah, sure. I, it's interesting that the movie that our fans selected last time was Inglorious Bastards, a movie that I totally admire in terms of its craftsmanship and the genius of the filmmaker who made it, but have problems with it philosophically. Yeah. This is a movie of which I totally admire the craftsmanship and the genius that made it. I don't have philosophical problems with the movie, but I sort of, I feel as we discussed that the more I dig into it, the less I find. 
I think in terms of what, of having an overwhelming visual psychological experience, yeah, Inception's amazing. Yeah, but it, and and I will watch it every few years, and I will show it to my kid, and I'll, I'll I totally like it. But I just don't think there's a lot there, mm. you know. And that's not the kind of movie that I go back to, even though what's in it, yeah, is great. Okay. Um, I absolutely love the movie, and I think it's visually stimulating as well as intellectually stimulating. And uh, I agree with you that the deeper you go, you can start asking questions. But that's why I uh, have reframed it in the essence of this is Cobb's dream. The entire thing is Cobb's dream. And then you're jumping back and forth to find out whose dream is in charge of what and what's happening. Because uh, in my mind, this is Cobb still in limbo. Um, and right. I, I don't think he ever got out. And I don't think that top ever falls down. Um, and it feels like the Matrix, where when the architect at the end tells Neo, or tells, you know, basically says to him at the end of Reloaded, I think, this has been a continuous loop. We're the end of revolutions. This is a continuous loop. You're just the most recent hero in this particular loop. It'll start all over again in a different way. And so to me, I think this is a dream that Cobb has all the time in limbo. This is something he does all the time in limbo. This is a constant uh, cycle. So it is fun to explore for me. I think it's incredibly well shot. As you said, Hans Zimmer's score, the cinematography, the pacing of the film, mm -hmm. the shots, the angles, all of it really uh, invite you into the film and hook you into the film and keep you transfixed with what you're watching. And so it was great to revisit it for this conversation and it's fun to explore it. And absolutely, you can de deconstruct this thing to, to where it blows away like the sandcastle would in, a wa in the water. Obviously, it can be broken down, but what I enjoy about the film is that it's a fun exploration as you're breaking it down uh, to where it falls away by the end. Uh, and I you know, enjoy the performances, and it's very, very well cast. I totally love what you said. I thought that was really beautiful. The only comment I have is that in your explanation of what you like about the film, you mm -hmm. referenced the most disappointing ending of a trilogy. I mean, like to me, the end, you know, Matrix Revolutions, the architect yeah. saying, hey, this is all about, I hate it. And so did I. I hated yeah. that. It was like, well, why did I watch the six and a half hours of this damn thing? If it was, it was such a betrayal. A yeah, yeah, exactly. But in yeah. this, uh, I think this is, a, I think just this is, this is Cobb's, this is Cobb's punishment for what he did to Mal. This is I, the, you know, he is in limbo or what they call between heaven and hell, uh, purgatory. He is in a dream purgatory paying for the sins of what he did uh, to Mal. I totally agree with that. And I, I think this is, this works a million times better than Matrix Revolutions. That's, oh, yeah. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is so much more successful. It's that those, I've only seen the sequels once. Yeah. I never watched them again. Yeah. And I took because to me, they're just a betrayal of what is one of my favorite movies ever. Yeah. You know? I don't disagree with you, yeah. brother. I don't disagree um, with you at all. All right. Well, that is what we think of Inception. Obviously, we thought a lot. It wasn't just a two-parter. It was two, a long two-parters. We think we talked close to four hours about yeah. this movie. Yeah. Um, so we went in pretty deep into the dream world. But we'd love to hear what you think. In particular, some of the stuff that we're talking about, about, what do you think is really going on? What do you get out of this film? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Please visit our Facebook page. You can just do a search for the Cinephiles, C-I-N-E, 
F-I-L-E-S. You can subscribe to the show and we really would like you to on iTunes. If you don't want to do it on iTunes, try YouTube, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Anchor. Um, leave your comments there. Leave your reviews. They're really important. If you want to buy in or stream Inception through Amazon Prime, don't go to Amazon Prime. Go to <laughs> cinephiles.net. Why? You get the same movie, but we get like four cents and we could really use the four cents <laughs> um if you want to give us a little bit more than four cents maybe you should go to patreon.com slash the cinephiles where we got a whole bunch of new tiers coming up we got a lot of good benefits including our cinephile shorts that we release every week um and you can find me at sr morris on twitter on sr morris one on instagram you can find the cinephiles at cine underscore files on twitter the cinephiles podcast on instagram john how about you you can always find me at the roca says on twitter Twitter and on Instagram and uh, um, a new thing I'm doing now, Twitch. I'll be on that more. The Outlaw Nation, all one word, lowercase. Go and follow me on Twitch there. And then, of course, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash John Roca says. Uh, go and follow that. Uh, you know, I've lost some followers recently as I've become a little more vocal about what's going on in our world. So maybe if you've been hesitating about subscribing to my channel, you can come make up some of those followers that I've lost and see the great content we've got on there. And I'm very proud as we're recording this, and, and maybe this will come out a little bit later, but uh, as we recorded this, I'm very proud of the content we recorded this week on the Outlaw Nation uh, in numerous shows talking about what's going on in our world and relating it back to uh, sports or entertainment uh, or uh, whatever we got going on uh, in the, the world of movies. And I think that is it for this week. We will see you next week for another great film on The Cinephiles. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C.